You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. U.S. equities surge as bond yields trade sideways. Has the stock market gotten over its fear of rising yields? And how are institutional investors thinking about Bitcoin? For all this and more, I'm joined by Troy Gajewski, co-chief investment officer of Skybridge Capital. Troy, welcome to Real Vision. How are you doing? Doing great, Jack. It's an honor to be on with you and looking forward to talking about a wide range of uh, topics, including markets and the economy. It's an honor to have you on. Uh, for everyone who doesn't know, Troy is the uh, co-chief investment officer of Skybridge Capital alongside Anthony Scaramucci. Uh, Troy, so you have your gaze on a lot of different assets, being a fund of funds. Um, you're looking at credit, looking at uh, structured credit, looking at equities, as well as your recently launched Bitcoin fund. Uh, but let's start off with the asset, with the uh, move that really is, is causing turmoil in every single asset class, and that is the rise in treasury yields. How are you making sense of that? Yeah, well, so when you think about where we were pre-pandemic and the complete collapse of yields because of a you know disastrous economic outcome coupled with incredible uh, increase in the Fed balance sheet and also them cutting rates again back to zero, you know, last time they were there was obviously after the global financial crisis. You know, so that drove this substantial drop in yields, you know, to around the 40 to 60 basis point range for a large part of last year. And what's happened, you know, particularly starting with the better growth numbers in Q3 and Q4, and then the great vaccination news and now dissemination and distribution of that, uh, coupled with off the charts levels of fiscal stimulus, not only the first CARES Act, but the last package signed into law by Trump. And now, you know, another uh, roughly eight, nine percent of GDP signed into law under Biden. You put that all together and yields are going higher. The question is just how fast and how far. And, and so we came in the year roughly 90 basis points in the 10 year. You know, we're, we're settling into this let's call it 1.6 to 1.8 range here. And what that's doing in turn is it did pressure equity valuations a bit, but it is causing you know, quite a bit of pain in generic vanilla fixed income, you know, particularly treasuries or investment grade credit right now. Let's get into that, Troy. Can you break down why is it that uh, interest rate risk has hurt treasuries the most and then investment grade? And then why is it that some forms of fixed income like high yield and particularly CLOs, structured credit, have yeah. proven more resistant to interest rate risk. Yeah, so great. So look, when you talk about risk-free rates going higher, remember there's the front end of the curve, which is what the Fed controls, and then there's the back end of the curve, which basically markets price. And obviously the Fed tries to manipulate to some extent through their balance sheet expansion. But you have to remember markets are setting the back end of the curve. And so it, it, the, given the low starting point of yields for treasuries, they have more and more duration than they really have in, in history. So if you have a nine-year duration or an eight-year duration, a 100 basis point move up in yields leads to an eight or 9% decline. Uh, so that is what you know, treasury yields are and treasury investors have been facing you know, really since uh, Q3, early Q4 of last year, but it's accelerated earlier this year. When you look at investment-grade credit, similarly, very long duration instruments, that being said, 
because they're economically sensitive and interest rates are going higher because of better economic growth, that has dampened some of the downside there relative to treasuries. But now as you move down the quote unquote quality spectrum, sometimes less quality is actually better quality. You know, what, what you find is you think of high yield. We're, we're not buyers of high yield just for the record. But when you're talking about vanilla assets, at least in high yield, you came in the year around four and a half, four point six percent yield, all time lows. But at least you're getting something. You have much less duration, you know, three and a half to four years. So you don't feel as much pain as interest rates go up. And then again, this is very important. If interest rates are going up because of better economic growth, what that should in turn lead to is lower default rates, because that's one of the ways that you lose money in high yield is by defaults going up and, and you know suffering losses through bankruptcy. So, so rates are going higher for good reason. Spreads have tightened or the amount that you're getting paid to own high yield versus uh, treasuries and investment grade. And that's helped buffer losses. In fact, it's not nothing to crow about, but high yields up about 1% year to date, whereas most fixed income is down. Now, when you segue into structured credit, a lot of the strong performance in structured credit, particularly in January, gets back to one, these are very economically sensitive assets. Better economy means better performance. Two, you had not had a full recovery of those assets from the sell-off in March. You know, some assets had recovered 80%, you know, residential uh, mortgage-backed securities. Some had only recovered 40 or 50%, non-agency CMBS or aircraft bonds, for instance. Uh, but they were all starting still at depressed prices. And so that gives you more upside capture to better economic outcomes. And then furthermore, you know, when you think about, you know, housing markets, class example, like at the end of March, early April, we were very confident that housing would get through the pandemic in decent shape. That being said, even bulls like us did not think we'd see 9, 10, 12, 15% appreciation of housing. Um, and forbearance requests never got nearly as high as people feared, and they've gone down tremendously. Um, and even in the event of a delinquency or a foreclosure, it's very hard to lose money when you came in the pandemic at a 50 LTV or a 60 LTV, meaning as a lender, right? You're, you're lending to someone that has a 50 or 60 loan to value ratio. 40 to 50% equity. And guess what? That loan to value ratio is lower now than it was coming into pandemic. So that means even in the event, because you this will happen, you'll see some sales, distressed sales or foreclosures. It's unlikely the lender actually loses money. The last point we'd make is certain sectors, and you mentioned CLOs before, um, are floating rate. And that's one of the things people forget about the March period was if you were long structured credit, you were not only getting blasted because of technical reasons, you were getting hit because of concerns over defaults going higher, but you were also getting hit by the Fed going back to zero, right? As they cut rates aggressively. And if you're at an L plus or a CIFOR plus now uh, return, um, that's painful. Um, so what we've seen so far this year is as markets have repriced out rates in the future, uh, that means you should end up with more cash flow in floating rate securities. And it really reminds us of that 17, 18 period. And the Fed hasn't hiked yet by any means, but they will. The question is when, 2021, we doubt, 2022, we doubt, but maybe at the end of 2022, but that there's at least a path to getting off zero, which increases your long-term cash flows and the potential upside in those securities. So, you know, 
fixed income markets do have a tremendous amount of heterogeneity. On the one hand, you have risk-free treasuries that have gotten hit the worst. On the other hand, you have credit-sensitive uh, structured credit assets tied to the residential housing market or levered loans that have clearly performed the best and should continue to over the foreseeable future. Okay. So in late March, early April, you had these mortgage-backed securities, residential RMBCS, commercial CMBS that were trading at extreme lows. And you and your folks at Skybridge saw opportunity there. That's been a very good trade. But it's my understanding that since then, you've rotated a little bit out of structured credit. You're still sanguine on the sector, still overweighted. And by the way, when I say overweighted to the people at home, that means they actually own more of it. It's not sort of like a sell-side bank saying they're they're overweight something. It's actually real money. But um, so so you're you're rotated uh, a little bit out of structured credit. Why why is that the case? Yeah. So every opportunity set, no matter how rich it is in the short term, starts to mature, and, and, and you find better opportunities elsewhere. So we had roughly sixty percent of our exposure there the last nine months of last year. Uh, we enjoyed very strong returns. January was a very strong month for structured credit. And so as we compare it to other opportunities, and I know we'll talk about some in a little bit, the, the relative risk reward, it wasn't necessarily deteriorating. It's just that you had less upside in the future, given the strength you had in the past. And you know, e even though loss-adjusted yields, which is a metric for adjusting your cash flow for future defaults, is still much higher than it is in just straight vanilla high yield, you know, those yields are coming down, coming down, coming down. And so we took some of that capital, we harvested it into strength, and we rotated into things like Bitcoin, which is our favorite macro exposure, uh, convertible bond arbitrage, which we feel has more upside in this environment. Um, we did ramp up and nibble on long short equity, not only to catch beta, but also to have some alpha potential there. So we were trying to build out more diversification and harvest gains in the strength and ultimately have more upside potential over the next six, nine, 12 months, which is really easy to say. I wish it was that easy to do, but we, we feel very confident that the shifts we've made uh, should increase for return potential. Unfortunately, they have so far this year. Wow. We've got a long short, we've got convertible bond arbitrage, and then we've got macro, uh, i.e. Bitcoin. Those are three really interesting sectors. Let's start with the most niche one, convertible bond, bond yes. arbitrage. Could you quickly describe um, what it is uh, to people very quickly and then describe why you rotated into it, why you saw opportunity there? Yeah, so so convertible bond arbitrage, the first thing for the viewer to understand is that it's an old school hedge fund strategy. It's been around 20, 30 years. But fortunately, it doesn't have that much hedge fund penetration anymore. So it's really a long only dominated market, much the way it was in the late 90s, or early 2000s, which just so happens to be the last time managers enjoyed very outstanding returns. There's a direct correlation. The more crowded a market is, the more smart eyeballs beating each over the head to who can add more value, the harder it is to make money. That's just the way markets operate. And so that was point one, is that not much hedge fund crowding, very little participation. Um, point two is when you think of how that trade set up, you're long a convertible bond and you're short the underlying equity at a defined hedge ratio. So typically for every unit of convert you're long, you're short 0.5 units of stock. And that creates a positively convex trading profile. So when you have stock go up, the convert goes up more because it's positively convex, very similar to call option. When the stock drops, the convert drops less. 
And so that's deter or that's called gamma trading or convexity trading. Again, old school hedge fund strategy. But if you're in an environment where you expect heightened levels of realized volatility, think of all the things the last four or five months that have caused realized volatility, the election, the vaccine news, oops, higher interest rates, whoa, uh, you know, Reddit fueled um, short squeezes, all sorts of, of, of factors, then that strategy tends to benefit. Um, so we view it as something that could have equity-like returns, but have less downside in the event of a meaningful dislocation, primarily because you are short the equity at a defined hedge ratio. So we, we like that strategy a lot. We don't think returns are going to be as good the next six, nine, 12 months as they were the last six, but we still think mid-teens is a realistic target, which is pretty good in this environment. You mentioned the Reddit uh, crowd. That's a perfect segue to the long short strategy, which has been uh, also a very long-standing strategy on Wall Street, uh, mm -hmm. going long a uh, basket of stocks that you, you think have solid fundamentals and will go up, and hedging that equity risk by going short a basket which you don't like. We saw in late January that one fund, uh, Melvin Capital, really was feeling the pain. That, that strategy backfired as one stock they were short, uh, GameStop, just absolutely surged to extreme levels. And then it went back down and uh, then it back is now up in a range. Um, interestingly, today, actually, um, uh, they announced that uh, they could sell up to $1 billion of uh, extra shares. Uh, Troy, what can you tell me about the long-short strategy in a post-GameStop world? Yeah, so great points you made before. The, the first thing we would say, before we get into more detail, is remember, when you're long and short, you're trading one risk, systematic risk or beta, right? We make money when markets go up, we lose money when markets go down, for other risks. And, and one of the risks you're taking is that, hey, your shorts melt up in your face for whatever reason, you, you, you pick the wrong basket to be long and the wrong basket to be short, and you have big basis risk that opens up. There's no free lunch, right? So every strategy has pros, every strategy has cons. Fortunately, last year was a strong year for long short equity. And by the way, we had very little on. So this is, we're not even talking our book compared to the industry. So we were underweight that. But what happened is because you had this huge dispersion initially between growth names and, and things that benefited like Zoom, for instance, from stay at home versus old economy. You know, REITs would be an example that were getting pounded or banks. Um, you had a huge dispersion and there was an ability to add alpha. Then as we moved into the late stages of the year, that started to reverse. So you need dispersion to generate returns, but it doesn't necessarily mean you will. In most of the post-global financial crisis period, it's been challenging for this strategy with last year being one exception, 2013 being another. So as we've legged in there, we, we tried to focus more on high gross low net tech and healthcare because our expectation was that alpha wouldn't be revert. And those are two of the few sectors where you have enough dispersion that you can actually be long and short and have a chance to make money. Fancy that. And, and you can actually add alpha through your security selection process because of the complexity of the names and you know, you think about you have five, 10 baggers because it's a successful cancer therapeutic or, you know, a complete busted phase three trial. So that, that has been our focus. Now, with regard to GameStop or AMC, you know, unfortunately, what you had was a variety of hedge funds that just were too crowded to shorts, right? You should never be short a stock with over 100% of the float short. 
That's that's a really a no-no. Um, but what this has caused the industry to do is to further reevaluate. So so most were looking at you know online chats and Reddit and understood that retail participation had been growing. It wasn't like January 15th, suddenly retail investors showed up. I mean, that's been a trend for three years. But to, to refocus on that, move up in market cap for your shorts, because as you move up in market cap, you know, it takes that much more buying power to drive a, a short squeeze. Minimize crowded shorts. Again, that should be shorting 101, but this is a good kick in the teeth for the industry uh, to, to remember. And, and also, when in doubt, uh, there's nothing wrong with using an index or an ETF. If you're really trying to minimize beta or systematic risk, you know, and you can't find any good shorts, maybe because the economy is recovering or earnings are going to be better than you estimate, or you're, you're worried about these retail Reddit fuel rallies, hey, use S&P futures, use DQs, something to take out risk. And, and then lastly, be more diversified in your short book, because that way, if something crazy like that happens, the, the damage is minimized. Um, so luckily, most of the extreme price action did mean revert to some extent in February. Uh, but we don't expect 2021 to be nearly as good for the generic long short fund as it was in 2020. But we'd still expect those managers to generate much better returns than fixed income or, or high yield, um, albeit with more, more volatility month to month. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Thanks for that, Troy. On the topic of dispersion, what do you make of the ongoing rotation from growth stocks into value stocks? Do you think that rising yields have been a catalyst for that? Yes. And what's your outlook going forward? No, that's a great question. And, and so uh, if, you, if you don't mind, I'll take you back to really August, September. So you know, as we were interacting with various long short equity managers or managers across any strategy, one of the big pressing concerns was, okay, growth has really outperformed value in cyclicals. You know this is going to be in revert. It's just a question of when and to what degree. So you better not be over your skis in any particular risk, right? If you're if you're long go-go growth names and, and your short value, you better keep an eye on your risk there because when that mean reverts, it can be very, very painful. And so what started to happen in November after the terrific vaccine news first came out, which we should all you know, just remember how thankful we are for the modern technology, uh, is you started to see that occur. But all assets went up, right? So you were in a bull move, value was starting to outperform, but hey, growth was doing fine too. So, so no really big deal. It really wasn't until Q1 in really March, where you saw that basis widen out. And so, you know, you look at various indices, but roughly 20% outperformance of value versus growth for the first quarter, which is a historic level. And, and, you know, as we looked at this further, interestingly enough, over every time horizon from the pandemic, whether it's April 1st, May 1st, June 1st, value actually did outperform growth, which is somewhat shocking given the fundamentals uh, have not recovered fully, uh, even close. Um, so we're not going to sit here and call the end of that trend. However, you know, value and cyclicals did get really fully priced towards the end of March. You started the last few days of March seeing a little bit of 
let's call it normalization to the pre, you know, Q, late Q4, Q1 trend where growth started to reassert itself. And you, know, you look at today, for instance, you know, the NASDAQ's outperforming again. Big cap tech is outperforming again after underperforming for quite some time. And so it's, it's always dangerous to call the end of a short term trend. But the longer term trend has been people are more willing to pay up for growth in, the, in a slower growth environment. And it does look like that start starting to reassert itself. And in particular, as you point out, this has coincided with the stabilization of treasury yields, right? So if, if the 10 year is going to two or two and a quarter, you probably see different price action. But we have had a historic move, 40, 50 basis points to, you know, 1.7 plus or minus, you know, 90 basis points plus coming into the year to, to that same range. So we have moved pretty far in treasury yields. Uh, so it looks like uh, growth is starting to reassert itself here. My final question before we get into Bitcoin is about treasury yields. Obviously, no one has a crystal ball. No one knows whether TLT is going up, down, sideways, or wherever. Um, but, but that being said, um, you know, where do you think the probabilities lie for that longer end of the curve as we get this extremely good positive news, whether it's Friday's uh, positive jobs numbers, the non-farm payroll numbers, or it's today the ISM uh, services index, which came out 63.7, much higher than expected. Troy, it feels like every day is this great economic news. You know, with that being said, where do you think the bond yields can the can bond yields stay in this range? No, I'm glad that you brought up that ISM number because it's it was a breathtaking number. Obviously, we had incredible growth in Q3, strong growth in Q4. And, and the one thing I want to point out to your listeners, sometimes or viewers, uh, sometimes this is lost in all the, the noise. And, and we went through a tremendous tragedy in this country, the loss of life still 9 million plus people without jobs. So we don't want to diminish this, the real suffering out there. But because of unprecedented fiscal policy, three massive fiscal stimulus shots uh, on the levels unheard of before in history, and a very accommodative Fed, and, and again, great technology, it looks like we have a very good chance to be back to tre pre-pandemic trendline GDP growth by the end of Q2, which is just, you almost have to just step back and think about what the country went through and the fact that we could be on an economic path that makes it seem like the pandemic never happened. Now, of course, you know, that's not true. There's still sectors that are hurting and unemployed people, but it's re really remarkable how fast we've come back from this versus the global financial crisis, which took years and years and years of consumer and banking sector healing. Um, so directly to your question, the first thing we'd say, and we've said this for years, is nobody makes a living time in the back end of treasury yields. Sure, sure, sure. Trend followers will capture bull flatteners and they'll capture bear steepeners. But in terms of p human beings, even with algorithmic machines trying to predict that, very few success stories over the years. Most macro managers make money in fixed income by owning optionality, meaning meaning paying a little bit, and then there's a big move, and, and hey, your, your put or your call or your swaption kicks in, and, and, and you did the right thing, but you still weren't you know, uh, definitively sure. That being said, this has arguably been the easiest bear market to call on fixed income because of how artificially depressed yields are. And if you go back and think pre-pandemic, you know, yields were still materially higher than where they are today. Um, so it really would surprise us if we weren't pushing 2% or north of 2% by the end of the year, uh, just given the, the, the economic recovery, the continued vaccine dis distribution, 
the uh, fiscal stimulus that's just about to hit. And, and people forget there's $3 trillion plus more in commercial bank deposits now than there were pre-pandemic. The consumers are flush with cash. Corporate America is flush with cash. There, there is not a spending potential problem like we had coming out of the GFC. So we do think yields are going higher. Um, we, we probably won't see as violent a moves the next three months as we did in Q1, but it's hard to imagine that yields don't move higher over time. I think that's a great segue to Bitcoin because calling the long end of the curve has been a macro trade for the past 40 years. But as you say, it's a very difficult thing to do. A lot of macro uh, people are getting into Bitcoin and getting into DeFi because they see more opportunity there. You know, you see, let's say Ethereum rip 12% in a day. It's it's hard to get excited about the it's not DXY. So bad. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to get excited about the DXY going from 90 to 92 when you're when you're used to that price action. So that being said, um, you know, you, you and, and Anthony at Skybridge. Uh, we're early in adopting Bitcoin for institutional investors. Uh, how, can you tell us a little bit about your thought process in that? Yeah, so for us, it was really fascinating. I mean, we, we try to look at every asset. No one can do it in real time perfectly. We, we, Lord knows we make far more mistakes than we'd like. But you know what we started to do last August, September, remember, if you go back to that period, Equities had reflated. They were actually more expensive by August, September than they were pre-pandemic. High yield had come back a lot. Yeah, we sure look, we still love structured credit. It was lagging. We knew that it was going to continue to perform well, distressed credit, a few other things. But what could be the next return driver that made sense for our portfolio, meaning had attractive upside, was somewhat non-correlated to other assets that we owned. We always prefer more liquidity to less liquidity. Um, and so we were looking at a variety of options and very similar to what we were doing actually in August, September, it just so happens that somewhere months in 09, the post global financial crisis way to play hyper loose monetary policy, massive central bank expansion, uh, very large budget deficits, the desire for every central bank to debase the currency post global financial crisis. It was gold, which we started to look at. And we quickly concluded that now, you know, the post-pandemic way to play it is crypto, particularly Bitcoin, given its its status as a market leader. And, you know, the thesis is actually really simple. And we're kind of big proponents of the keep it simple, stupid theory of life in general, particularly investing. You know, the first is we already have 28 percent plus more money supply now than we did pre-pandemic. Unprecedented growth levels, three to four X what we experienced post-global uh, financial crisis. Um, two, you know, what is the end impact of that always? And this is one of the points we make um, in various white papers. And, and, and sometimes this isn't highlighted enough is that what really since Greenspan in, in, in the long term capital management uh, shock of, of 1998, the Fed response has always been to flood markets with money to calm down markets and then hopefully end up with real economic inflation. What in turn has happened is every market cycle, every economic cycle, the Fed is forced to print more and more money to get lower and lower GDP growth. And so if you look at these ratios, they really start to take off in the late 90s into today. Um, and um, you know, GDP is still below where it was pre-pandemic for the time being. So there's no use even citing it. But so what happens is money gets injected and it principally causes asset inflation. Um, and, and that's, again, it, whether that's a good or bad thing for society, in effect, 
It means every asset is materially more expensive today. Even oil with the twin threats of, of fracking and clean energy than it was in, in the early 2000s or, or the late 90s. Um, and so when we thought about, you know, again, you have this massive money supply growth. Where are you going to see the most potential asset inflation? And you went through your checklist. You know, hey, like the NASDAQ, maybe it could be up 20 to 30 percent this year. Maybe not given full valuations. We're still very bullish housing, but, you know, 10, 15 percent type gains, maybe even lower as interest rates have gone higher. Um, and Bitcoin was one given its market cap and still its market cap today that you could have materially more upside. Uh, the second part of the thesis is very important too, particularly, you know, those that have not followed crypto closely, although I would suspect most of your viewers are very savvy to the market, is just the natural halving cycle. And, and again, as we were diving into this in August, September, you know, it really surprised us how few people talked about that because it's just the way it works, man. You know, you, you take any asset, any um, commodity, and you suddenly artificially constrain future supply, in fact, cut it in half. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out prices are going higher. It's a question of how fast and, and, and to what degree. And that's why you see these very powerful bull markets for Bitcoin, you know, roughly two, for the first two years after the halving. And remember that the, a lot of people look at that artificial March low, which is tied to the pandemic. The real halving uh, price is about 8600 to put it in perspective. And, you know, you, you've had 19x upside in the in the first halving of 2012, you had north of 30x upside, you know, in the 2016 halving. And, you know, we're obviously nowhere near that yet. And then thirdly, and, and this is part that, you know, we were actually so pleasantly surprised as moving far faster than we envisioned back in August, September, where we first started nibbling on a position um, in the third week in November, is just how fast the adoption cycle would, would progress. Um, and, and again, this takes us back to gold. You know, gold was really adopted by hedge funds, multifamily office, life insurance companies, not as much corporate treasures, but there was some of that in there as well. From 06 through 13, that was really the period. It was a long period. Things moved a lot slower back then. And, and, and global allocators basically went from no gold because they thought it stunk to like, hey, 0.1%. And this allocator is like, no, look at me, 1%. And no, 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 I'm over here. I'm a real gold bull. I'm going to 3%. You know, that's it. And that happened over that period. And so we, we anticipated something similar to happen to Bitcoin and crypto. But that being said, we're, we're very surprised at how fast. And you obviously know the news items, whether it's a Tesla or, or Morgan Stanley, um, you know, announcing that they would offer these products to their, you know, their massive distribution channel. Um, you know, JP Morgan's even bullish again on Bitcoin after taking a little pause there for a while. So, you know, we think, again, relative to other things you could invest in, admittedly volatile, admittedly it will be down in a, in a month like March or, or September 11th or some other unforeseen uh, cataclysmic event, but very liquid, typically non-correlated, but has material upside in an environment where risk-free zero, most assets are fully valued, you just have to be able to stomach the volatility. Um, and given that most of the other assets and strategies we invest in have well below equity vol, e even adding a meaningful Bitcoin position, our portfolios uh, trailing volatility and expected future volatility, we still think will be materially below equities. Troy, and when you have an asset like that, that is uncorrelated, that is admittedly, as you say, very volatile, but does have a incredible track record of 
going up, to, to put it simply. How do you go about putting that in a portfolio in terms of a, the percentage allocation? And another question is, let's say you buy it at 20 and it goes to 60, so it goes from being 1% of your portfolio to 3%. Do you trim it back? Do you take, yeah. a, take on more of that risk? How do you think about that? No, great, great questions and all things we grappled with and still grapple with uh, now as discretionary in, investment managers. So, you know, it's we've treated this a bit different than other investments we've made historically. You know, most asset classes don't have the degree of upside or volatility potential as this. And so what I mean by that is, is, is most strategies and themes we start to nibble on as we get more uh, color and, and more confidence and, and it starts to look more attractive. Again, everything's relative vis-a-vis other things we could invest in. That's when we start to scale up and size up. You know, there have been a few exceptions, but like the subprime short, you had to get on that very fast. But we, we bumped that up three times in 07 prior to those securities ultimately going to zero. Uh, so in this case, we, we were confident that if there would have been a move, it would have started late last year, which is you know, typical seasonality uh, for the space. And so we started to nibble very quickly, decided, no, you know, we got to put our full at cost position, which in our opinion, for our portfolios, we thought 5% was the right number, meaning it was big enough to matter if we were right, actually drive material outperformance, which clients obviously hire us to do. But also if we were just dead wrong in the thesis, like this cycle is completely different than others. The Fed was somehow going to start to tighten policy. No one was going to adopt it for whatever reason. Uh, we could tolerate the downside, and so we're not predetermining if and when we trim. Um, our holding period for gold was 23 months. To put it into perspective, uh, it has appreciated for reasons you're well aware of to about 14.4 percent of the portfolio. Um, but we don't want to artificially reduce it based on some preordained constraint. Uh, given that it's still a relatively small part of our portfolio. And then lastly, I would say, we unfortunately, in hindsight, we decided not to add to this uh, as it pulled back over time. Like, hey, whatever our first at-cost position, which again was originally 5%, we had a little extra cash sitting around mid-December, so we ultimately took it up to 55 and so we're not going to add in pullbacks, which, you know, it's kind of a shame because I think the January pullback was a golden opportunity to add. But, you know, given given the risk reward profile of our broader portfolio, we're confident it'll continue to grow um, over time, um, at least for the next several months. And that's really how we're managing this month to month. How does it look versus other assets? Is the macro environment still favorable? Is the adoption cycle still progressing? Where, which month and day and week are we in the having cycle? And we're still, you know, relatively early there, as you know. And then we'll make decisions to trim or cut back uh, in the future. Wow, uh, so much to think about, but we'll have to leave it there. Troy, thank you so much for coming on the daily briefing. I've really enjoyed hearing your insights. Uh, thank you so much, Jack. It was great to be on. We'll do it anytime. I know Anthony would love to be back on with you guys as well. Great. Let's do it. Thanks, Troy. Nice. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads.
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.